Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, we love Burger King Grilled Dogs. They're made with 100% beef, and they're 100%. Mm. They're so good, they make us want to sing like... I can't believe it. Burger King made a grilled dog. Made with 100% beef. Flame grilled anytime you want. This July 4th weekend, put down the tongs, step away from the grill, and get to Burger King to try a grilled dog for just a dollar. Ask for the dollar grilled dog deal and get a classic grilled dog for a dollar. Only at Burger King. At participating restaurants on July 2nd and 3rd, limit five per transaction while supplies last. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. This is Daniel Lurie, your host. We have a fun, eclectic show for you today. First up, we have Dan Hanner. He's a Real GM writer about college basketball who's... Detailed predictions are up actually on ESPN Insider. We talk for about 22 minutes. Then I have uh, the first time for a new feature on the show. It's going to be a recurring feature called My Life in Basketball. And the idea is to talk with people who have interesting niches within the sport and are talking about it. And our first guest in that is Rashid Malik, who is the co-owner of WarriorsWorld.net. It's a kind of a different site. They try to occupy their own niche in terms of the Warriors and fandom and being a being a site that has original writing and has video and everything, so I wanted to talk with him. And finally, I have Ethan Sherwood-Strauss. He's an ESPN writer. We talk about a lot of different stuff, start out with about 20 minutes on the NBA and then another half hour on the league and the sport and more generally in terms of things like the draft and the CBA and tanking and all that fun stuff. So hope you really enjoy it. First up is Dan Hanner. We talk about college basketball. It'd be great to have up his piece on ESPN Insider. He ranks all of the teams based on his simulations from the entire NCAA. It's a it's a really remarkable thing. We talk about it a lot. And then he has other pieces on the same point on ESPN and on Real GM talking about his rankings and what he thinks they mean. Thank you so much to Dan Hanner of Real GM. And actually, your most recent uh, ranking article went out on ESPN. And I just wanted, before we really get into the nuts and bolts of it, if you could give people uh, a really quick overview of how you generated how you generated your model and made the rankings. Yeah, well, uh, you know, the big thing I noticed a few years ago is that uh, despite the fact that all the pro sports basically do everything at the lineup level, that uh, in the college sports, we weren't really seeing that. Uh, college basketball... Most people were doing predictions based on a team-level thing, returning minutes, uh, you know, how many starters you have coming back, things of that nature. But nobody was really taking the energy to project every single player and then build up team projections from the player level. And, and, and that's really the way we think about predicting the season. You know, we, we don't look at Kentucky and say, well, how is Kentucky changing from last year? We say, 
who are the starting lineup for the Kentucky Wildcats going to be this year? And, oh, my gosh, these guys are going to be pretty fantastic. And, you know, that's, that's how we think about a projection. And so that was really what my system did was add a, a lineup-based uh, system to what's going on. And the other thing I decided to add this year was to really add a simulation because the other thing about college basketball is it's completely unknown. I mean, there's so much unknown, so much uncertainty heading into every season. We, uh, you know, most of these players have very, you know, maybe we know a little bit about how good they were in high school, but we've never seen them against college-level competition if you're, you know, elite recruits. And even for those guys who are, you know, seniors, we only have a small sample of games from multiple seasons with which to try and, you know, draw some conclusions about them. So um, trying to take account for this uncertainty, uh, I added this uh, simulation component to the model this year, which really allows me to say, you know, what's the upside and downside for teams sort of statistically. So, you know, those are the big things that I've added. And uh, so far I've I've had a lot of uh, interest and, you know, people are excited about the rankings and I'm excited about that. And you can see the volatility in the sense that there are 14 teams that have the best case scenario of being a top five team. And that's pretty remarkable in a sport that has high end talent and kind of interesting denominations at this point. Right. No, no, absolutely. In fact, this is, I I do want to go back and run this for more previous seasons to get a better sense. The the problem is I'm, using sort of limited data, because one of the big things I added this year was the star ratings, and, and I have more limited data um, historically based on how uh, recruits are rated based on the star rating system. But, yeah, I mean, I think that this is a year where we do have more teams that might actually be in that sort of final four picture than usual. I think, you know, all the way down, you know, even a team that I criticized and I got some Twitter response on at Memphis, who, you know, uh, is going to have a probably a, one of the strongest senior laden four guard lineups in the country they don't quite reach that final four potential but you know when you're looking down to about the 14th or 15th team and saying that this is a team that legitimately could challenge in the upper echelons be a final four championship contender you know you've definitely got a a good group this is this is one of the stronger years of college basketball in recent seasons and at the very top it's fascinating because there are teams that have a lot of continuity like louisville michigan state and then there are teams kansas and kentucky that have very little continuity Exactly. And, and it's funny. I mean, uh, talking about the teams at the top, I sort of lead this in a little bit. We'll come back to the rankings here in a second. But, uh, you know, we've got the championship classic coming up on Tuesday night. And I think everybody is completely fascinated and excited to see the matchup between Kentucky and Michigan State because here you have the perfect contrast. You have a Michigan State team that's a well-coached, experienced, veteran lineup. They've been there before. Um, they were very successful in a very tough Big Ten last season. You know, they look to have all the pieces that they would need to be successful. And then you have a Kentucky team that has five raw, talented freshmen who are likely going to be on the floor at the same time. We may see a little Will Cauley-Stein and Alex Poitras in there, too. Um, but you're you're really, you know, talking about one of the youngest teams you will ever see on the basketball court together, but also the best recruiting class, uh, you know, in the modern era of college basketball. And to see these, you know, will these young guys against the experienced guys, how they will – you know, hash it out early in the season. I, it's just, it's an absolutely fascinating game. And if anybody's not watching next Tuesday, you, you don't love college or you don't love basketball in general, I think. But And the Champions Classic has another strong game as well. So it's going to be just this, a beautiful night of basketball for early in the season. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, it, the, you know, first off, the design of this event is so fascinating. And Kentucky's been working on, I, I, I've certainly been reading things recently about John Calipari trying to get another event started with UCLA and some of these other teams that are elite teams that aren't uh, necessarily participating in the event. But, you know, who doesn't have 
an opinion about Duke and whether they, you know, they like the Blue Devils or hate the Blue Devils um, or, you know, have an opinion about, you know, Andrew Wiggins and want to see him in action. A matchup between Kansas and, and Andrew Wiggins, the, the super hype freshman, people have said the best player since Le- LeBron James, the best, you know, player since Kevin Durant to, to enter college. And, you know, when you're getting such hype about things like that, every, there's, there's going to be a lot of people who are just tuning in on Tuesday night hoping that he falls on his face, that it's a complete uh, disaster for Kansas, and there'll be just as many people tuning in hoping that, uh, you know, the, the Duke Blue Devils get their comeuppance, as, as people tend to do um, every season. But, you know, a, a large part of what's fascinating about these things, uh, you know, another way I look at it is the truth is for, for those of us that are true college basketball junkies, all of these games are really fascinating early in the season. You know, we look at the NBA, and you have there, – there are certain teams that everybody wanted to see this year. Everybody wanted to see Houston. What, how is the chemistry going to be built between Harden and Dwight Howard? And, and you know, you look at or the, the Brooklyn Nets, and everybody wants to know how is the chemistry going to build there. But in college basketball, every roster is turning over every year. So, you know, these early season games, particularly these early season holiday tournament type events, you know, getting to see, uh, you know – how these new lineups are are going to work together. These, you know, these players have barely practiced together. They've only been together for a few months in some cases. And so, you know, all of these, it's just the, the excitement of seeing the chemistry built. And in Duke's case, the really fascinating thing this season is, you know, the question of will this be one of the more, you know, Duke has always been a good three-point shooting team, good offensive team. But this, is, this year, you know, there's talk that they could put a lineup on the floor with Jabari Parker playing the five spot and someone like Rodney Hood playing the four spot, who's, a, who's really a traditionally a guard, but who has more uh, size to play inside at the college level and, and could put a, a lineup of five devastating shooters on the floor at once, but also play a little bit weaker defense. So, it, you know, it, it really is a uh, intriguing game all around. It's also with college because in some ways you're you're more dependent on the talent that you have in front of you because while you can recruit, you can't trade and things like that. So the way you have it, so you get into those situations with Duke where it's possible that their five-man lineup has Jabari, has Jabari Parker at the five. And the, the other factor in all of that, at least for me as somebody who went to a major college and who does all this, is the understanding in college basketball that things will look very different in March than they look now. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. I mean uh... – you know, I will be trolling the box scores and trying to learn as much as possible over the next few days about how these teams are, you know, who they decide that they feel comfortable starting early in the year. But but the truth is that there is a huge metamorphosis a lot of these teams undergo. And I think, you know, you look at it in particular, uh, you know, Michigan State is, is one of those great teams that does tend to play its best at the end of the season. They tend to be you know, for whatever reason, is it that Tom Izzo likes to sort of leave his players out and let some of the young guys struggle a little bit? Um, but they, they do progress, and, and that's the other thing to say. All of these players are at the developmental stage of their career. They can, at any point, make huge jumps. I mean, I remember one of the – Cole Aldridge in the NCAA tournament, what is it, four years ago now or something like that, you know, he was a player who was quiet, who did nothing the entire season, and then there was a little bit of fall trouble for Kansas' front line, and he got in in the NCAA tournament, and Aldrich suddenly became a superstar. And, and I think we saw that last year with Mitch McGarry, who became a superstar late in the year. These are all raw talents. They're at, at a very young point in their career, and you, you just never know when they're going to break out and start to, to reach that next level. And also you see the, the, the factor of basketball is such a collaborative sport in terms of how different talent affects other talents. It's going to be fascinating to see how for a guy like Alex Poitras, who I really liked his physical talent, 
but had kind of a strange fit with last year's Kentucky team. And this year's Kentucky team is almost a completely different group of guys. So you never know if you're going to see if that's going to make more sense with his skill set and whether a year, another year in the system will make him better. Exactly. No, I mean, a, a year ago, you know, <laughs> probably had to play, you know, as one of the bigger guys in Kentucky's lineup in a lot of circumstances. This year, Kentucky is loaded in the front court. That's really where they have all their strengths. Andrew and Aaron Harrison are really the the two guys who they're going to depend at for guard play. And so, you know, will Poitras have the ball in his hand a lot more than he did last year? You know, that'll be an interesting uh, dimension to watch as well. I noticed in your rankings you have Michigan 12th. I completely understand that. You talked about how their upside, their guard rotation, well, their forward rotation is going to be excellent. Their guard rotation is really hard to figure out right now. Right. Walton and uh, Spike Albrecht, who, you know, Spike Albrecht <laughs> made a couple of huge plays in the final four last year. Um, certainly a, a guy that, uh, you know, people could be excited about, but we saw him all of about, you know, a hundred minutes of basketball played for him last season. And, and, you know, if he plays well, if he plays better than his recruiting rank would have said, which a lot of Michigan guys have been doing lately, then there's no reason with the front court of Mitch McGarry and, and uh, Robinson that they can't really reach that next level. But at the same time, you know, he, here was here was Spike Albrecht. Here, he was a guy who was not highly recruited out of high school. Most programs in major conferences were not looking at him, and and he could be you know the point guard for a, for a team that, that that some people think has Final Four potential. And 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 does he can he carry that load? Can he can he handle all that ball handling that that he might be doing this season and replacing Trey Burke, who was the College Basketball Player of the Year in in various places last season. Oh, and one other thing I felt like I had to ask about as I saw it in the as I saw it in everything was Grambling State had they were they're ranked three fifty first. Did they finish last in every single simulation? Yeah, they really did, which is you know, I, I even need to look back at that a little bit. But Grambling's been bad for the last few years in college basketball. They've been at another level. They finally won a basketball game last season after going winless uh, the year before. And and as you as you saw with the whole football scandal, they're just a program that is really really going through financial difficulties and things right now. So you not only have the past history is not very good, but they just are not even recruiting for the SWAC at a very high level at this point. And at some point, I think they're gonna you know maybe this new coach who they they got last year is gonna find one or two players because you don't really need that much in college basketball to to turn things around. But but based and everything we've seen from this program recently and, and the type of players they have on the roster right now, it, it's just really hard to, to, to peg this. I mean, they, they do return a lot of players from a team that was very, very dreadful last season. So, so I, I feel it's hard not to feel, especially given the, the stories in the news about, uh, you know, all the program cuts and what the, the football players refusing to even travel to a game because they, they, they wouldn't install tiles in the, in the weight room floor. But, but Grambling's in really rough shape right now. Another ranking that I thought was fascinating is Oklahoma State's defense. Their rating is insanely good. It's actually better than Louisville's, if I'm reading if I'm reading it correctly. Yeah, and and uh, you know I think th- there's a couple things um, you know coming to play there, but a large part of it I, is uh, is Oklahoma State really returns you know the majority of their roster from last season. Uh, they get a little more front court um, support in Gary Gaskins. Really, this is – there are very few college basketball teams at, near the top that return so many minutes and are going to have that continuity. And, and from a defensive perspective, 
talent will get you so far towards the top, but having a certain amount of continuity where the guys have worked together for a period of time is really a key factor. And that, and that's returning 90% minutes from last season is really why they're able to, to, to be near the top on defense. And and the Big 12 this year, at least as far as I've seen it, seems like that continuity could play a major advantage, especially early on, because even teams like Kansas, Kansas is presumably the best team in the conference, but they're integrating so many pieces that that could be hard even for them, and they're the I think they're the most talented team by a, by a pretty decent margin. Yeah, no, there's no doubt about it. I mean, the the one thing Kansas has going for them is that Bill Self is the most consistent defensive coach in the country. He, uh, you know, in the last ten years that he's been at Kansas, his teams have been in the top five in defense basically every year. He he seems to have the magic touch, and he, he's lost a lot of players before. I mean, he's had he's lost eighty percent of his team lineup, you know, with a bunch of players declining for the NBA draft and. In previous years, so this is not the the first season. But you're exactly right. I mean, for a team like Oklahoma State and a team, you know, a few other names that are out there like Iowa and Virginia and stuff like that, those are teams that really need to make their hay early in the season. They need to win the holiday tournaments, win all their non-conference games, really sort of build that beautiful resume profile so that when it comes to the end of the season, everybody looks at it and goes, oh, they got all those quality wins. They really deserve a high seed. Whereas a team like Kansas and Kentucky, you know, they're just hoping to make it through this part of the season. You know, if they lose two or three games, they're not really sweating it too much because they know later in the year, once they start to build the chemistry, they'll be in better shape. And I feel like I'm required by law as a UCLA alum to ask what you – I know that you have them at 20. is just to your feel on the team going going into this year with the new coach and everything else. Well, I mean, so first off, the, the interesting thing is – you, uh, there's so much to talk about with UCLA, but they uh, they have one of the higher variances for a team sort of at their level of the rankings in that, you know, the model basically says they could be a top 10 team or they could finish around where they did last year, which was almost near 50th in the country. And, you know, that's, that's a huge sort of range because there, there's a lot of unknowns about this team. I mean, you know, from a lineup perspective, it's a little bit of questions about who's going to be the ball handler, the primary point guard. Certainly plenty of talented players there. Jordan Adams. Everybody in the Pac-12 knows about him, but I don't think he's getting enough respect nationally for what an incredible scorer he is. But there's so much about style of play with this UCLA team that's hard to figure out. You know, Ben Howland was traditionally a defensive coach, more of a slow-paced coach, things of that nature. But last season's team was, I mean, it didn't even seem like a Ben Howland team. It was running up and down the court. They, had, they were one of the faster teams in the Pac-12. They didn't play any defense whatsoever. They just hoped to outscore teams how Steve Alford fits in to do that, try and build them back into a, a cohesive, you know, team that, that does the right little things to win um, will be interesting. But, you know, Alford really has the track record. I mean, he was successful at Iowa. Um, he wasn't forced out there. He just decided that New Mexico was a better fit at a certain point, and he was very successful at New Mexico, including their uh, Mountain West Conference, you know, dominating squad last year. So he's a good coach, uh, whether he – you know, has the, he's, he's certainly no Shaka Smart. He's not going to be the sexy guy. But, uh, you know, if he wins, people aren't going to care too much. Yeah, and, and they have natural advantages in terms of recruiting that they can capitalize on if they have a successful year, just that they can, that they can do that. And it's such an interesting composition, as you mentioned, composition of talent. They're actually in a weird situation in terms of possibly using Kyle Anderson, handling the ball more, and going really unconventional if they want to. I'm not, but I'm not sure they do. Yeah, no, well, and, and that's a great point, too, because – I think that'll be interesting to see how adaptive Alford is. I mean, this is one of the things that I think 
you know, people don't appreciate necessarily so much about coaches like Mike Krzyzewski and, and various people like that who they adapt to their personnel. They, they look at their personnel and they can kind of change their system to what it is. Some other coaches like Roy Williams, it sort of feels like they kind of got their system, they're going to run, he's going to do whatever. You know, and if his personnel doesn't quite fit that, it doesn't seem like he moves to the next thing. And it'll be very interesting to see how adaptive Alford is because I think Kyle Anderson could be one of the best players in college basketball in the right system. There are a lot of teams. We've seen Louisville for a lot of recent seasons has run sort of this high post offense, putting one of their forwards at the top of the key and, and distributing the ball from that. And, and you could totally, you know, do something similar with, uh, with Kyle Anderson. Just, you know, position him at the free throw line, let him see the floor, find um, folks to distribute the ball to. And, and he could be an absolutely have – a, have a fantastic season distributing the ball and scoring and, and be, the, you know, the reason that he was the top five recruit uh, initially. Uh, were there any teams in the model that, that when you got the results out that really surprised you in either direction? Yeah, I mean, one of the teams that people didn't ask me enough about was was Denver. I thought was a little bit low in the ranking, but but I think you know as as I thought about what I changed about the model this year, I think the model now the way I have set it up depends so much on the recruiting data that is really an important component to what's going on because there there's so little we know about a lot of these teams that we're very dependent on whether guys are two star, three star, things of that nature, and and. And that data, you know, if you look at it, does have a lot of predictive power. It's not just, it's not just a, you know, a guess. I mean, these, you know, pe- people go to these AAU tournaments and scout these guys extensively. They don't just make these star ratings up. They've watched a lot of uh, action in order to do it. And for teams in smaller conferences, if they don't bring necessarily everybody back, it's just very hard for a model with so much, you know, basis on the recruiting data to put a team very high. So Denver – a lot of people like them. They dominated the, the WAC last year. But the truth is they do lose two of their, their better players this season. And when you play in a small conference, you're not, you're not, you're not reloading with, uh, you know, Jabari Parker and Andrew Wiggins. You're reloading with some two-star, you know, freshman who is going to take a while to learn how to compete at the college level. And so I, I think uh, I was surprised a little bit with how much more punitive the model was to teams like that in small conference leagues who otherwise – um, you know, people might have liked. On a more on a more personal level, what teams are you most excited to see both at this point and then let's say also what teams are you most excited to see what they're going to be like in March? Hmm. Yeah. Which teams am I? I you know, I it, I think this is this is really as I started to say earlier about you know what is the beginning of the season like? I I think for most people they're interested in their alma mater. Um, I'm from Illinois, as if my D Brown t- Twitter moniker. Uh, was not obvious in that regard, um, but uh, it's people care about their alma mater. But but the truth is, for those of us who are college basketball junkies, we just this the reason we're into college basketball is because we love to see so many different teams in action. You know, you, the the fun in college basketball, as it will be for the next you know four or five months, every night of the week, you're home you're home on a Wednesday night, you're just having dinner, and you can just flip channels and catch the ending of one game and catch the ending of another game coming down to the wire and just see, see all of these teams and, and care just a little bit about all of them uh, and what, what's going on. It's, um, you know, I'll be staring at the box scores on Friday, fascinated by the lineup decisions at Baylor, the lineup decisions at Arizona State. You know, is, are people with uh, 
you know, who 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 is going to be good enough to play with Shaheed Carson, who's one of the best uh, players in the country, but possibly on a you know doesn't have as much talent around him. Will, will Jermaine Marshall finally be able to be a winner? He was. He was a great scorer at Penn State, but you know, can he can he be the 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 spark that kicks Arizona State up to the next level? So, it's you know, to, to say one or two teams, uh, it's just really hard because, I, I, to be honest, I care about all of them. That makes sense. And then also, as as somebody who's more in the NBA thing, though I obviously love college basketball, the the factor of kind of getting a little bit invested in players who may end up playing on the same days of the week, just in in the professionals, is is also worth that time and energy, especially with the college ranks as talented as they look to be this year? Yeah, I mean, um, th- this is definitely – people have been saying for several years, oh, college basketball's down, college basketball's down. Th- this is not the year that people are going to be saying college basketball's down. So if you, you know, if you have a little time in between your NBA league pass, not, not only is ESPN going to continue to show all the millions of games that it is, but Fox Sports 1 getting into the action as well really adds another dynamic as well. Uh, you know, the idea that Gus Johnson – and Bill Raftery are going to be calling games, two of the most popular college basketball broadcasters in America, um, going head-to-head with ESPN on Monday nights. It should be a lot of fun. Yeah, it should be an absolutely fabulous season. Thanks for helping break it down. You bet. Thanks again to Dan for sitting down with us. Next up is Rashid Malik. He's the co-owner of WarriorsWorld.net. And for interest of full disclosure, that's a site that, in addition to Real GM, I have also started writing a weekly column for this year. And as I said at the outset, it's an interesting site, occupies a kind of a different role in terms of fans and writing about the team more, more critically, and they have produced video content and everything else. It's a, it's a really interesting site whether you're into the team or not, and I wanted to talk with him about their place and his specific life in basketball. Thanks so much for coming on. No problem, man. So you want to give, give our listeners your actual title with Warriors World? See, I don't think there's ever been like a official title per se. I just like, I mean, you could say technically, you know, co-site owner. You could say lead editor, whatever. I mean, it just I don't know. I don't think there's a necessarily a specific title. It's just, but it just kind of seems that when people think of Warriors, well, they kind of just associate me with it, like through the years. So. Well, and you also fit in as kind of the public persona right. of the site. I, I don't know if that fits in with the job title, but that's kind of the way that I've always seen it, having met the other people involved with the site. Yeah, I mean, I think that just kind of happened by uh, just by default when, yeah, that was, like it was in like a conscious effort where I'm like, hey, I'm gonna like I'm gonna be Mr. Warriors, or like no, like I'm, yeah, just just kind of stumbled upon me. So do you want to so people who are less familiar with the site and how it got started? Do you want to walk them through kind of how how the site got going and how you became a part of it? Yeah, so the site itself has been around for over I want to say almost eleven years, eleven plus years. It was a originally um, it was originally called there was a site called Harold's Board, I, I believe. It was basically just a diehard, just you know, early internet message board for Warrior fans when the team sucked and you know, where fans kind of just flocked together and kind of vented. And eventually Harold, the guy who owned it, just kind of was like, you know what, I got, you know, life. Is, I can't, I don't want to do this. I don't want to keep running it. So he, you know, he kind of just handed it over to Dell, who's the, uh, the co-owner of the site now. And, you know, Dell was running it for, what, five, six years. And it was, for the most part, it was people just knew it as a, 
you know, for the forums. Our forums was our, our biggest draw. You know, pre it was you know, this is pre Twitter, pre heavy Facebook. So this was like the one spot where you can go and really talk Warriors. You can watch a game and uh you know, do live uh live reactions, updates, whatever you wanted. So I was coming up, I was in college and I was, you know, frequently visiting the site and it was a summer and I was like, Hey, I need to like keep my writing skills sharp. So let me contact Dell and see if I can, you know, kinda do something with the site. What exactly? I don't know, but I hit him up and he's like, Yeah, sure. He's like he just gave me two rules. He's just like one, he's just like don't cuss nobody out and uh two, just don't make me look stupid. I said, Okay. So from there I kinda just put a plan together and it was kinda it was the essence of it was how do I stand out? How do I make Warriors World bigger than what it is? And how do we kind of make it bigger than the forum? So early on, it was just a lot of, I was just doing a lot of like Q&As. I was doing a lot of interviews with just big time writers. Because I was like, hey, if I can get, you know, this was back with five, six years. If I can get like a Mark Spears from the Boston Globe, if I can get a Tim Kawakami from the Mercury News or whoever to come on and do a Q&A with me and let people kind of see that, hey, like, there's this site called Warriors World that exists that all these kind of writers and uh, NBA people are kind of co-signing or, you know, affiliating themselves with somehow. It'll be a good look and it'll be a great opportunity to grow our brand. So we did that and then just organically just started growing and growing. I started incorporating video probably about three years ago when I started getting more access with the team. I was like, hey, I want, what What should I do with this access, right? Like, do I want a career in this? I never looked, I never went into it thinking I was going to make a career out of it. But as you start setting goals, you start achieving goals, you just set another one and another one. It just kind of seems like the goals just keep getting knocked off the list. So we incorporated video, video took off, the site took off, just growing and growing. Now we got 10 plus writers, you know, we're with ESPN, True Hoop, we're, credentials with the season for the Warriors. Uh, our riders have been credentialed at All-Star Games, playoff games, uh, you name it. So it's just, it's been a good journey. And what's amazing for me is that through that whole process, the whole core that it started as, you know, a site with, with forums, the forum community for the Warriors on, on Warriors World is still really strong. And I, 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 I wasn't there back then, so I can't uh-huh. compare it, but it's, it's a really impressive thing that that has stayed kind of the way a big part of the site yeah see the thing with the forums is that for the longest time it was kind of like this almost like an underground cult community where you know a lot of the even a lot of team employees a lot of players a lot of coaches they were they would all be on it but no one would acknowledge that hey i'm in the forums i'm reading it right it was kind of like almost like taboo that you didn't want to publicly announced that you were in the Warriors World Forums, but they all were, they were all reading and some were posting and yeah, that's been, you know, it's been, it's kind of like watching, when you watch your favorite artist grow, right, you kind of like, you stick with it because you were there from the beginning, so that's why a lot of the forum members, like, they're still there to this day because they're like, hey, you know, we've stuck it out 10 plus years and, like, you get to know people, like, you get to know these forum members, like, on a personal basis, you might, you know, you might meet up at a game or, you know, share personal stories and whatever the case may be it just it's just like a nice little niche that's that's been able to weather the storm of twitter facebook instagram and every other social network out there and that like still during games the forums is you know red hot with updates reactions and everything 
And it's and it's also I think in some ways it's more it, it, in other fan bases might find it impressive that it's persisted through the team being bad. But that was kind of a whole part of it was that it was this place to do that. And the team was so bad for so long that I always kind of felt like that was part of the identity of the Warriors fan base. And that's been weird now as the team's getting relevant. I mean, they were number one in Bill Simmons and Zach Lowe's league pass rankings. And it's still weird for me to think of the franchise that was kind of a laughingstock for my entire life as this relevant thing to people other than this small community. Yeah. I mean, you nailed it. It's, it's an uncomfortable feeling. Even right now in the forums where like we've like Warrior fans have never really been experienced a good team, right. Other than pretty much we believe like everything in the early nineties, mid nineties was kind of like before our time. So it's interesting to watch this team actually be good and how fans are reacting to it. Like, you log on to the forums at any given day, and you will find people complaining about everything. Like, right now, the biggest thing is, there, like, there's literally arguments going on about the team of a backup center. And there's people <laughs> worried about the lack of a backup center on this team. And, you know, they're, they're going back and forth on this. So it's always that. It's always something and to complain about, to vent about in there. And people, you know, say... Like, no one's immune to it. Like, they kill me in there. They kill everybody. That Like, they kill Ethan. They kill... If you don't get killed in the forums, then, like, you haven't made it, basically. Do you have a vision for where, what you'd like to see the site grow into over the next couple of years? Adding unique content. How can we... Like, how can we continue to separate ourselves content-wise and site-wise from other people, right? Like, like now, access is, is given to way, 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 way more people than it was say five years ago like we were pretty much like the first digital you know like blog i mean i hate the i hate the word blog or fan side to describe us because i don't think we're neither we were the first ones to kind of get the access with the warriors and now it's kind of it's kind of cool to see you know so many other digital entities being involved so it's like how do we step continue to separate ourselves and i think one way is by you know strengthening our team bringing in talented writers such as yourself and a couple other additions we made this uh, this summer, and just pushing ourselves to how can we be better? And we're, you know, we're in court, we're doing a lot of more unique video stuff, content-wise. We're gonna drop. You know, we launched the podcast last summer. Just trying to really take it off from there. Not like now we we're launching the gear, so we we really want like that Warriors World presence to be at like Oracle and out and about. So I think that's the next step is kind of continue to grow it and make it bigger and kind of just, just really cement ourselves as the, as the go-to spot for everybody for Warriors, for Warriors content, whether it's on Twitter, Instagram, and every other spot you can think of. One last one question to let you add on. I, I just thought of this. I wasn't going to, I wasn't planning on asking it. If you had to guess what year the Warriors will be playing full-time in San Francisco, what would your guess be? I'll say it's a great question. I'll say 2018. I'll say they'll delay it one year and then from the original uh, plan of 2017, but I think they'll be in there by 2018. I just think that the dedication is there to get it built. The the money's there, and Joe Lacob just seems hell-bent on making this happen, and he will spare no expense. And if it means one, you know, delaying it by one year, then so be it. But I think he sees a bigger picture with this, that once this gets built like it's really going to transcend this team there's a lot of potential that 
in, in just having an arena like that in San Francisco and just the potential revenue streams both for the team and for the city in general, that could be really interesting. I think there's plenty of desire. I think I, I've been bouncing between 2018 and 2019, just depending on if they can build at their current location. If they can build there, I think 2018. If they're going to have to move, then I'd add another year to that. Yeah. But I, I would be, I wouldn't be surprised if it's either of those. But that would be. It's gonna as much as I'm gonna miss Oracle. I, I really will. I, the story that I haven't told publicly is that the crowd was so loud during Nugget series in Game Six that where I was sitting, I actually lost hearing in my right ear after the game. Wow. I lost hearing for about an hour. So when I was doing all the post game, I could not hear out of my right ear. So you, like that kind of stuff is gonna be is going to be changed. And I've covered, this is my fifth year covering the team and I've been to plenty of arenas now and I've never seen anything quite like it. And that, that's going to, you know, that's going to be gone, but it's going to be a different thing. And if it can allow the team to pay the luxury tax and to do what that, what comes with that, then while it's regrettable and unfortunate, it could lead to better things for the team. And I think that at some point you just kind of have to roll with that. As great as the Warriors fans are, they need an arena just as great as them. So I think that this new arena would be perfect for that. Okay, well, thank you so much for the time. No problem. Anytime, man. Thank you for having me. Take care. Thanks again to Sheed for coming on. It was great to hear him talk about Warriors World and where he sees the Warriors and the site moving in the future. Finally, have Ethan Sherwood-Strauss. He writes for ESPN. He actually also writes for Warriors World, coincidentally enough. And we talk the first 20 minutes are about the NBA, what we've learned so far, what we're coming to expect, and then we move on to topics like the draft, to tanking, the guys that are coming up, how we would structure the system. Ethan and I have had conversations of this type for years, and I really wanted to get some of those concepts out here, and hopefully you guys really enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. Oh yeah, of course. So we're we're about a week in now. Are there any, obviously it's too early to make any big statements, but are there any takeaways that you feel comfortable with from this small sample? Is it too early? Don't, don't you believe that we essentially know the playoff picture at least 20 games in? Four games in, hey, maybe we'll look back and we'll make fun of this podcast later, but doesn't it appear as though we have eight Western Conference playoff teams four games in, as crazy as that sounds? I think that the West has clarified itself more than the oh, East, yeah. and some of that might just be related to continuity. The, the teams, let's say Houston didn't have continuity. Houston was a playoff team before they added the piece they added. But the East, I still have a ton of trouble figuring out. Well, that's because a lot of the East just doesn't matter. <laughs> that whole back end of the East, it's... Yeah, you know what? There's only really a cutoff between playoff and lottery and technicality. But really, a lot of those Eastern playoff teams, or a few of them at the end of it, are, are lottery teams that are going to the playoffs. I think that the big the big thing that I've already taken away is actually with a guy, Paul George, oh, that yeah. he's looked so much better so much. Than, he looked, than he looked last year. And last year, I think I had him second team All-NBA. I might have had him third. It was, it was right in that mix. And to see what he has already done, and he's so young... It's impressive. Oh, it's he's a terrifying player right now. You know, I guess this is why the wisdom of crowds matters, because I, I believe that people were overhyping Paul George in the playoffs, and his statistics weren't all that impressive. I knew that he was an elite defensive player, but the offense was Rudy Gay-esque, and people saw something, and they seemed to be correct in seeing something, because 
he might even be doubling his PER right now. He's around that range this early into the season. And, of course, he'll tell off a little bit, but some things probably won't regress, such as he's dribbling far better than he did last year. I don't know how he did that. I don't know how he accomplished that. I want Harrison Barnes to figure it out and to copy whatever he did, but he's been great. What, what's been so different with him is that he looks offensively like a, a, a natural evolution, but a completely different offensive player than he looked even at the end of last year. So when you talk about that people hyped him last year, I think a lot of that hype was poorly founded, but then it ended up becoming true yes. with what happened. I'm not sure that people, and that includes myself, I've been hyping Paul George forever, saw necessarily, they saw that this was possible, but you didn't see it then. You just saw the possibility. Yes, I would agree. It, it's, he, he was an elite defensive player who deserved praise for those reasons, but people were hyping him for Rudy Gay reasons, such as he's athletic, um, he takes shots. and One thing that he's done that might have keyed his game is he's just, he's just using a lot more possessions and taking a lot more shots this season, and perhaps that's allowed him to exact more control on the action. Uh, I, I'm sort of at a loss for words for it because he's, been, he's just been totally impressive. I was somebody who thought that the development that the Pacers needed to get to that next level, or even really to stay at the level they were at because of the way things fell last year, was going to come through Hibbert becoming more assertive, sorry, not defensively, offensively. And instead, at least as of now, it's come from Paul George. And that's fine. It's just different. Oh, it it is different, and it gives them, it gives them, it sounds ridiculous, a whole new ceiling. How do you raise your ceiling in a house? That seems quite difficult. That doesn't seem as exciting as what's happening right here. But we knew going in that they were a title contender, whatever that means, but this has really solidified their status as that and as the biggest threat to the Miami Heat in the East. And as you know, I'm a big, my theory with all of this is kind of the timetable of contention and the idea is that Teams have a ceiling, and then the big question is how long can they maximize that? And what Paul George has done for them is he's so young and he could get so much better. I think that they have to reevaluate how long they could potentially be a relevant and potentially even dominant yeah, team. Yeah, they might have screwed up in giving David West that contract. They, because they might have enough without him and with just some sort of filler, and he's not going to be the same player in a, in a couple of years, so... That might have been a misstep. I think that at the same point, though, it's hard to back away from that when you're in a market that's hard to get free agents because they already have enough money committed now to George and to Hibbert that it would have been difficult to make those upgrades, but they're going to need to pray that they're not in the situation that the Warriors might end up in where they're, the the way that they would have gotten money expires after the guys that they, they're going to need to pay get paid. Yeah. Well, I, I I can't wait. I don't know when you're putting this podcast up, but I can't wait to see. Tonight will be a test. It will be a test of Paul George against the Chicago Bulls. Maybe we'll get a better idea and we'll settle down a little bit. I I, I do wonder. I do wonder. We're, it's never going to be said that they're the the top team in the East or the team to beat because um, we're used to the Miami Heat being at the top of the heap and they've won the last two championships. But I do wonder if maybe they are. Maybe they are and we're not ready to see it or not ready to say it. The the challenge with Indy that's still the case until I see otherwise is that you're running into the same situation that Chicago has that when it gets down to crunch time and you put LeBron James on the other team's best creator 
can the other pieces do enough to beat Miami at, at full strength? Well, that's why that's why I want to see tonight as a test because he's going to have Dang on him. He's going to have some very good defense. I want to see what he's able to do and if somebody like LeBron James could contain him and prevent him from creating offense, they do have a dearth of players who can dribble a basketball and, and pass a basketball to other people. Um, and that might be an issue for them, you know, uh, in, in these playoffs. But I've been highly impressed with what they've done. Um, I'm recording their games in the DVR. I, I'm not sure. I, I don't have an answer to the question of whether they're better than Miami or whether they should be favored in a series going on. We don't have enough information. We still haven't seen Greg Godin take the court in the regular season. Um, so that, but, but that's where we're at with the East right now. In the East, we essentially have a two-team situation, <laughs> I, I, I think, and I fear. Maybe Brooklyn, maybe Chicago, but for the most part, if we're honest with ourselves, there are two teams um, who can make it out of the East, barring injury, and in the West, there are maybe six teams, six or seven even, if you want to get imaginative. I think that the challenge in the East, and it feels like such a cop-out, but the health question as we saw with the west last year is going to play such a major question because i think that there there are a couple of teams i i'm still a believer in brooklyn in terms of their postseason potential if they improve like i think they will over the course of the season but we there i think there are four teams that have a shot in the east and we don't know if one or two or hopefully hopefully not but even more of those teams get knocked out before then this is so. I have, I have some questions about Brooklyn. I have, I have some concerns about them. Um, for one, KG looks kind of kind of sad. <laughs> he just <laughs> he he looks like half a KG, and the track record on uh, big men in their late thirties getting traded it's it's not great. It's not great. But the for some reason, it's really hard to have an underrated star in New York City. It's really hard for that to happen. And somehow, Brooke Lopez has become that guy. He's been fantastic in the early going. He was really good last year. And I'm not, I'm not convinced that he's a defensive minus. I think he's a defensive plus as a player. I was talking last week with Arturo Galetti, from, originally from Widgets of Wins, now Boxcore Geeks. And the question that we both had with that was, was last year's Brooke Lopez season an outlier? Because if, if that's his new baseline... He can be the player that a lot of us, I had him as the number two prospect in his draft class, thought he could be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, that's dangerous. There are, there, he could be over, like, he could even be now the best true center in the Eastern Conference. He definitely could be. He definitely could be. Um, I'm, I'm not exactly sure what that kind of presence means for championship contention in 2014. I know what it means in 1994 and 95. It, it's a must-have. You need that back in that day if, you're, if you don't have Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen. Uh, nowadays, I do wonder if that's, if that's such an advantage or if there are complications there with a, an offense that must feed Brooke Lopez in the post but also has to give Darren Williams his minutes and his touches. So... A lot needs to unfold out there in Brooklyn. I'm a little suspicious. I, I would put them, let's say it's a three-team situation because I don't believe in Chicago. I'm not big on Chicago. Three teams can make it out of the East, uh, in my belief, with all this small sample size. 
what I think is going to be the story of this year, and this this will end up again. You joked about that. This could be something that flies back in our face months from now. I think this is going to be the year that we learn how teams that are not willing to pay the luxury tax are just not. They don't have the championship ceiling unless things work out ludicrously yeah. well, like the Thunder when they made the finals. Yes, I, I would agree. The Chicago situation is. I, I, hey, I was talking about this before the season started, and again, I could be proven wrong, but I was amazed by the optimism regarding the Bulls. It didn't, it just didn't sink up to me, where a lot of pundits, uh, Simmons included, and he could still be right, I want to establish that, uh, had them figured for over 60 wins. Um, they, Pythagorean-wise, I, I believe that they were a 500 team last season, so this idea was that Derrick Rose coming back would just add 20 wins. We didn't know even how good he's going to be. We didn't know if he would stay healthy because he, he is injury prone with the way he moves, and he's already starting with a neck issue now, but somehow he on his own would get 20 wins. It seemed as though the people who wrongly and foolishly picked him for MVP in 2011 still wanted to validate that belief in their faulty choice and just described an impact to Rose that, that he doesn't have. He's a perfectly... Um, excellent basketball player, but the plus-minus never revealed a guy who would add 20 wins to your team, and people were just ignoring how they'd lost all these productive bench players, including a seven-foot defensive monster. So I, I, I didn't get the optimism regarding Chicago, and it doesn't shock me to see them out the gate looking like this, looking like a feeble offensive team. They make sense to me. The narrative on them being a really good defensive team and having that take other opponents out of their game when you're playing a different team each time makes sense to me. But the 60-win level seemed to understate, the, as you said, the guys that they lost because they had that, you know, they had Corver for a time. They had all these guys that were pieces that could keep them afloat when the best players were hurt or not on their game. And now that onus is on a much smaller group of people who are less capable of doing that when necessary. I completely agree. And even if, let's say that they do win tons of regular season games, they're capable of that. Those who pick them to win the title, they don't have enough talent. They don't have enough talent. They're just not a, they're not a talented enough team. I know that's somewhat subjective, and that's just my take on the situation. But honestly, look at this roster. You're going to tell me that's a championship roster? Really? It, it seems as though they have more goodwill than any team out there. I don't know why. I don't know what PR elements uh, came to cause this, but I, I've, never, I've never heard of a team more lauded for getting bounced out of a series in five games than when the Bulls played the Heat and got killed in a lot of those games. I, I, I thought that they fought valiantly and all that, just as most teams do in the playoffs, but the narrative surrounding them was, Oh my God, a standing ovation for these Chicago Bulls. Oh man. Oh, just what an effort. What an incredible effort. Oh, they don't give up. And hey, they, they had some good players in that series. You know, I, I, I get it, but they seem to be the most popular team among either casual fans or pundits talking about the NBA, and it has seeped into the analysis of that team. I think that they deserve praise for the way that they beat the Nets, though I think yes, that they that some of that that some of that also goes to the Nets' failures as a team. I think that I, I want to I want to cut team, in. I think some of that has ahead. to do with defense isn't real to people and offense is real to people. So they they perceive this wide talent chasm between the Nets and the Bulls, 
And what it really was was that the Nets were good at offense and the Bulls were good at defense. I'm not sure that they were so far apart talent-wise. They just One team just did something that we associate with talent, and the other team did not. Now, that's quite ironic because I was just deriding the Bulls for a lack of talent. But in the case of that series, that's what I believe happened. That's fair. One other thing that I feel I'm happy taking away with the season so far is that I picked Chris Paul to finish second in the MVP voting because I can't pick anybody other than LeBron yet, and he's been so ridiculously good so far. Oh, yeah. He's infuriating, though. He's my favorite player to hate and my favorite player all at once. I am so ambivalent about him. In that Warriors-Clippers game, he drew so many nonsense calls far away from the rim. It was maddening, but it was also masterful. It's an opus. He he just knows how to work every angle, find every little market inefficiency within the game of basketball, whether it's the two for one, whether it's grabbing a pl- you know grabbing a player when he's on defense on pick and roll, so the big guy can't roll down to the basket and he'll just grab his jersey when the ref's not looking. He finds everything. He's a savant, and he's a savant who's easy to hate, quite frankly. He reminds me, particularly this year, of somebody who combines Jason Kidd's level of understanding of how the game works with Dwayne Wade's level of, I don't care how I look, I want to win. Yes, yeah. And those two components are very incongruous for me because I loved watching Kidd from when he was in college. He was just one of those guys. He made his teammates better and everything. And Wade, in his early years, I always admired his talent and I always admired his desire to win, but it always bothered me that he would use every trick in the book because with the idea that he would do it if the ref wasn't watching, but he wouldn't do it if it was. And I don't know if it's just me developing as a person, but I guess I'm more okay with it with Paul, and that's unfair. Well, Paul's shorter. We always give short people the benefit of the doubt, I think. So maybe that's a factor uh, as far as how we appreciate NBA basketball. Uh, But I... I, I love Chris Paul. I love Chris Paul unless he's playing against a team I like, and then I hate Chris Paul. I, I, I tend to turn my anger more at the credulous referees getting tricked by people like Chris Paul and James Harden. Last night, watching the Rockets-Blazers uh, game, Harden does that fake whiplash thing that he always does and gets the foul call, and I'm thinking, James Harden, have you heard of him? Do, do you not see it coming? Is this is this a surprise to you? How do you get tricked by that? He does it all the time. He does it all the time. I don't understand how it works, but it works continuously with some of these guys. The nature of reputation among referees is a fascinating thing because it's somewhat separate but paralleling reality. And so Harden has gotten a reputation that, oh, he gets fouled a lot instead of reputation for, oh, he draws fouls a lot. And those are very different things that can be the same or they can be completely different. And so he's gotten the rep of, oh, he gets fouled a lot, so I'm going to look for this. And if you're looking kind of too close, you can't see the forest for the trees, and then you get the benefit. And I think he knows that and uses it. Yes, I, I, I believe that he knows it, uses it. Also, you don't want to get that you don't want to get that flopper distinction because once that happens – it becomes difficult to uh, sell calls. It seemed as though in the 2012 NBA Finals, Harden, the refs just weren't buying it. And so he was flailing in the lane and nothing was happening as the result of it. And that's when it gets, that's when it gets ugly. So I, I, I'm interested in that issue. Um, I also find it, I also find it quite annoying. So it, it was just, it was, it was ambivalence. It was ambivalence watching Harden last night too, because Harden was great as well. Uh, some of these guys 
where they have this ability to really trick the referees. I, I, I have a whole host of emotions when they do it. If Stephen Curry can develop any of that skill and start to get any of those calls, he's going to be he's already the hardest cover in the league. He will be uncoverable in a way that I don't think we've seen in a long what, time. What's with that? I used to think that it was that he didn't really sell it, but then in these first few games he appears to be trying to draw contact to sell it and it just doesn't work and he's a well-liked player, so I can't imagine that there's just something about him that refs are averse to. There must be some sort of alchemy with how one moves their body that sells a call uh, versus not selling a call, and he just he just lacks it. My feeling is that he's in the Harden NBA Finals range right now, that he's doing he's doing those things, but that the referees aren't believing it, and that something will happen. I don't know whether it's going to happen this year or it's going to happen next year, where the same action will yield a different result. And if and when that happens, look out. He's been getting fouled a lot on his three-pointers because people close out quickly on it, or at least flopping and falling down, and he hasn't really been getting that call so much uh the thing he could get that he doesn't seek to get is that kevin martin pump fake three-pointer uh jump into the guy he never does that and that's a way he could get some freebies yeah i worry a little bit about his ankles doing that just because it seems like anything that could potentially hurt him is a dangerous thing sure. because of how he is but he could do that, and Clay. At the same point, the Warriors have Clay, who doesn't generate enough fouls as well. So it might lead to a whole situation where the whole team can get officiated differently if a couple more players get more aggressive. Yes, I don't think it's the worst thing in the world. The Spurs—they don't get fouled. They can't get fouled, and they're a pretty good, pretty good team. In some ways, I believe that the Spurs are the model for the Warriors, or at least a model that they're trying to copy. Uh, so. It's something they could improve upon, the two weaknesses for that team, and they aren't the worst weaknesses to have, uh, the inability to get fouled and the bench. And you could throw turnovers in there, too, although that might be more a function of how the season has started. I think that the turnovers are more a function of how the season started. To me, the question, I was writing a piece for Warriors World on this, and I realized how little shooting with Barnes out in particular they have on the bench right now. Yeah, yeah, they and set, yet they're leading the league in three-point attempts. Pace adjusted, it's a little bit different. It's been amazing to see how many three-pointers Clay and Curry and even Iguodala can just hoist up there uh, because they, they, aren't getting, they aren't getting support from the bench. The bench is offensively bereft. And we'll have to see if that gets better. I, I tweeted uh, uh, during the Kings game that if Harrison Barnes could theoretically sop up all the rest of the bench minutes, the team would be much tougher cover, but obviously that's not going to happen. They, they need to simplify things. Frankly, frankly, I think Bazemore is probably a better point guard than Tony Douglas. D- Douglas is that bad. We've seen him run offense before. He's a very serviceable role player. I love his defense. I don't want to make it seem like I dislike him as a player. It's just when you look at when you look at a guy that tall and go, hey, you're that tall, so you should run point guard, it doesn't always work. He's not somebody who can run offensive sets. He doesn't see the court well. He, what he can do is he can spot up and hit threes and play monster defense. So even if I don't believe that Bazemore is any kind of point guard, maybe just running some pick and pop with Bazemore and Spates, that'll get the job done. They won't score that much, but it won't be brutal. And then hopefully defensively, their their talent on the perimeter can uh can can do enough to just get a draw get a draw with whoever they're playing
It would also be good to see them use Iguodala and David Lee a little bit more with that unit because they can both initiate and to have something like that where the person who handles, who, who initiates the offense can change around and doesn't put as much onus in the traditional system as, as Tony Douglas has right now. Yeah, they need to mix it up. They need, to, they need help. They don't have a bench mob. They don't have a unit that can just come in and do things. They need to be supplemented by the starting unit uh, because they just don't have guys who can dribble and pass. <laughs> it's a problem. Yeah. They, need, they need some people who can dribble and pass to, to help them. So transitioning more into the league at large, you and I have talked about a lot of broader issues, and True Hoop does a great job with the Hoop Idea series. And one of the things that, that has always been a fun point of discussion for us are things in terms of how you would how you would change the league in ways that would be better. So the first one I was thinking about was the length of the season. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you do? Do you do you have a sense of if theoretically, if it were your decision, you could put it in the CBA and nobody would nobody would be able to change it where you would put that line? I would put it with the Arnovitz model, 44 games and uh, biweekly. So all the games are on Tuesday and Thursday. Throw in a Sunday showcase. We already have Sunday showcases, but these ones would be extra special with a shortened season. So everybody in America would know that NBA games are on Tuesdays and Thursdays, as they do for football. That's a huge factor in football's popularity, in my opinion, is just the knowledge of what the schedule is, the regularity. If you ask the average NBA fan, hey, your basketball team, your favorite team, who are they playing a week from now? They won't know. They can't tell you. They can't tell you when they're playing. This way, people would have that regularity. I believe that the owners would never do it because they'd be afraid of just saying goodbye to all that revenue in the short term. But in the long term, they would make so much more money with the increased interest in the sport. They would also have a, a much decreased risk of injury. I've kind of been in the low 60s, high 50s camp for a while. But the the issue of just, for me, a lot of basketball injuries are just in relation to the amount of opportunities you have. Like, let's say you that there's a certain amount of risk. Like, if you had a 26 or whatever sided die you know, every once in a while it's going to end up on a it's going to end up on a 13 and that guy's going to get and, hurt. And there is some evidence to suggest that it's not just about the opportunity that the fatigue is a factor that playing a back-to-back is a factor. And if we know we're getting worse basketball in a back-to-back, if we know that teams play worse that way, then why are we having it? Why aren't we getting the best product possible? Uh, the owners I, in an ideal world would come together and they would realize that this isn't good for the interest in your sport. Having 82 games is way too many. In 2014, where people have short attention spans, you don't want to be like baseball, where you only have fans who are in their 50s. You don't want to be supplanted by some new sport coming around the bend. They need to cut the amount of games. And I I say they need to. That might seem like strong language. But if you ask everybody, nobody says we need 100 NBA games. Nobody says we need more than 82. Everybody, there is consensus, broad consensus, that there are too many games from players to the fans on down. So it's kind of amazing that they don't just shorten the season plus we could have the benefit we don't really know that reducing the strain per year could actually lead to players playing meaningfully longer if they wanted to yes that that the the severity of the wear that gets on a player's tires over the course of the season especially let's say it's an olympic year if you think about what lebron had that that stretch when he played in the finals twice and played in the olympics in the middle that if you could eliminate kind of the worst the worst strain from those, you could you could maybe see guys play into their early forties without seeing it turn into a oh wow this guy's able to do it 
and then that's such a, a freak occurrence of, oh, look, we can actually see LeBron for five more years than we were going to. Yeah, that would be a benefit. So <laughs> here's what you have to gain. Stars that people love playing longer, the basketball being better because the players are fresher, and if you put it on a regularized schedule, the sport increasing in popularity, yeah, cutting loose that revenue in the short term is very scary, and I believe that's why it will never happen, but with all the benefits, it should happen. It should really happen. In terms of the revenue, the other one that I'm bigger on, and I got some flack for this a couple years ago, is I'm a big supporter of contraction. Yeah, uh, a lot of NBA market shouldn't be. Uh, we can just put that fairly frankly. Um, we don't have to name specific ones. We don't have to do it. There are just I, I, I'm not even sure. Look, I'm not even sure we need contraction per se. Uh, maybe just taking some of these markets that are net loss markets and aren't paying into the system, and just adding teams to major cities. We should the bat, especially the NBA. It should be like England and the EPL where you have a whole bunch of teams in London because it's an urban sport whose popularity is highest in um, in large cities. That's where the people are. It makes no sense to be moving teams out to places like Oklahoma City. That's crazy. It's just setting money on fire. So I, I, I'm not sure I would necessarily support contraction, but I would support moving some of those teams to bigger cities. The craziest idea I've had on point was something, because I also love the promotion relegation, and I think that there's only one way to make it work. I'm not necessarily sure that I advocate it, but the only way that I thought of that was doing a form where you reduce the number of teams in, let's call it the NBA, and then you had another league, we could call it the ABA, whatever they would want to call it, where you get a small degree of promotion relegation, so you move some teams from one to the other, but then have the possibility of running it between the two. I believe that'd be really fun. I just don't think it's feasible. I don't think any owner wants to buy a stadium or build a stadium to be relegated out of the TV money and out of the league. So while, again, that would be incredibly entertaining, they're just, they're just, it just would never happen. It's the least feasible of the ideas we've discussed, I'm sorry to say. That's fine. I think that the other, the other factor in terms of the duration of playing that needs to be acknowledges that by reducing the number of games, I like the idea of shortening this, of, of making it so that the season doesn't start as early. But to me, the bigger priority is making sure that there are no back-to-backs whatsoever. Your system fixes that. I think any system has to fix that problem. Yes, we're, we're in total agreement. We've talked about a lot of these ideas at Oracle Arena. For the most part, on the Venn diagram of ideas, uh, it's nearly a circle when it comes to sprucing up this league. I just wish that there was the will and the motivation and the vision to not even make the changes that we're suggesting, because who says that we're any kind of genius? Who says that we know what's right? But just just changes, just good stuff, just improvement. There, there's a lack of that, and when they do make changes, it's, it's often in the wrong direction. It's stuff like just larding the game up with replay reviews, as though basketball isn't a continuous flow sport, and as though it is football. It's just... It's just sad. I, I, I think basketball is the greatest game in the world. It's just intrinsically better than other sports. It's beautiful. Guys are flying through the air. It's incredible stuff. And I think that it should be a lot more popular than baseball. It just should be. So it's disappointing. It seems like there are a lot of squandered opportunities. Uh, an interesting anecdote for me with that is that my sister actively hates sports. She's all right with hockey, but she generally actively hates sports. Well, that, and that she makes never sense because an... hockey is not a sport, Danny. 
Hey now, hey now. I'm 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 half Canadian, so I have to. Uh, you know, I, I love it's my hockey is actually my favorite you're, sport. You're, to you're half live. Canadian, half the goals are accidental, but we could move on. <laughs> but so it was interesting that I took her to her first NBA game. It was a Wizards game, actually, it, it was against Anthony Davis and the now Pelicans, but they were the they were the Hornets then. And she said at the end of it, she said, "I understand why you like this so much." And I think in some ways that's the best praise that you can yeah. give a sport like basketball is that even if people, if it doesn't engage them on a personal level, they can understand why other people like it. It's intrinsically entertaining. Football divorced from stakes is boring. Uh, I, I went to a preseason Chargers game, and it was when I was at the height of my football fandom. And divorced from that, it's a 16-game season and you need this game. From from those stakes, and those stakes aren't applied, football is intrinsically mind-numbingly well, mind-numbingly might not be the best choice of words considering some of the problems in that sport, but it is boring. You can watch people playing basketball in the park and be fairly entertained. You can watch preseason basketball and be fairly entertained just because there's an aesthetic wonder to what's happening. Football with the starts and the stops and the crash of bodies, once you remove the tension from it, it's nothing. Yeah, I I like some of the the mastery when football is really well executed. I think that it jumps to another level. When I watch the Saints or the Patriots or teams like that play offense or certain teams play defense, but the I agree with you that the stakes it changes the watchability more than any other sport, yes, and that's a problem. It what is your favorite solution to if you think that it needs one to fixing tanking? I think simplest is best. We don't need to get crazy. I, well. I, look, I'm I'm partial to the idea that you have something of uh, something. I hate to say an auction, but a, a, a draft that isn't a draft, where if you want the best player, then you pay the most money for the best player, and you you sign guys like that. I'm partial to that idea. That that's another one of Kevin's. But my solution that that I like best because it's easiest is just to return to a less weighted system. I would I would have it be an equally weighted system where. If you miss the playoffs, you have an equal chance, as everybody else does, of getting the number one pick. And we also reward teams who make the playoffs to guard against tanking out of the playoffs with perhaps more money and just fix it that way. Because truth be told, a team that just misses the playoffs in the NBA usually isn't a whole lot better than the worst team. And we should reward teams for, for winning. I Look, this whole conversation has been derailed into proving who's tanking. Oh, I guess they're not tanking. The real problem is that fans can't feel good about their team winning. We should allow fans the ability to feel good about their team winning, and I see the non-weighted lottery as the easiest way to, to accomplish that. In many ways, it comes down to a more philosophical question, and that is whether the goal of the draft is to bring talent into the league or to try to balance the talent in the league. And I personally don't think that it needs to have as much of the the worst teams getting better component, though I do understand if other people philosophically see that differently, then they can feel that way. I Yeah, I, I understand their philosophy on it, but there's this other issue where we're learning that competent management has a huge influence on which teams get good. So when we give these awful teams these incredible talents, we're not even really helping those teams get better because it's like water through a sieve. All we're doing is squandering an incredible black basketball player's career and with these rookie contracts uh, and, and the rules, the way they're set up, players, I mean, they, they don't even get to leave town until they're out of their prime almost, especially with a point guard. 
it's an issue. I don't I don't like it at all, and it needs to be reformed. And by needs, I mean I would like it to be because obviously we're all still watching basketball and enjoying it despite these problems going unfixed. The the larger CPA question, I think it was Jonah Carey actually, which is fun considering his background, brought up the point that. It's so strange that in the NBA, the market inefficiencies are with the best players. So the the players yeah. who are underpaid and all of that are the very best players. There's no other sport that has that to to the degree or even as really a concept as the NF, as the NBA does. It's it's fairly foolish. It makes sense that the union though is mostly comprised of rather average players. So. That's how it's ended up, but it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And if you want parity, you have to get rid of the max contract uh, because that's what enables teams to, to stack the deck, as it were, with a bunch of guys who are getting under market value for their services. And I, I just find it to be unfair. I'm not so bugged by the max contract, even though it is ridiculous and it's a market inefficiency. I'm more bothered by the rookie scale because – the rookies don't have representation, so the veterans just conspire against them in the collective bargaining, and they have ridiculously below uh, below market rates. Uh, it's, it just strikes me as unfair. To me, it would be interesting if they could make some sort of compromise where when you drafted a player, you could either sign them to a scale contract for two years, or you could sign them to any other contract without limitations, except for the other CBA stuff, you know, like the Max and the MLE and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. That that might be a, a fair solution. So if you want to keep a guy for cheap, then that's fine. But you don't get as much control over them as you do in the oh, current CBA. Oh, there's way because... too much control, and it needs to be the the rookie contract needs to be shortened or should be shortened. I, I gotta stop saying needs. I'd like it to be shortened. I hate seeing guys in a bad situation just really not able to leave it without sacrificing tens of millions of dollars. It's it's a dumb predicament to put them into and. Hey, if the team is a good organization and if they're doing the right stuff, then that guy will want to stay. Uh, so why do we have to really create all these incentives to keep him there? What are we doing there? Yeah, the other strange one that I've been thinking about a lot recently, mostly in the context of the Sixers, is I think that teams that are under the cap should be able to have more than the, the current maximum amount of players. I think that if you're under the cap, I, I would say if you're under the cap, just straight, not, not the tax, not the apron, you should be able to have as many players as you want just making but what that does is that as as long as you have more than 15 the cap functions as a hard cap I'm, so if you need to cut down those guys then then you do I'm that I'm fine with that I, I I have no objection you you you've mentioned that the idea to me it's it's a good one why why not be able to add more roster spots if you're if you've saved that amount of money I I, I don't see the downside and the hilarious part with all of this that people are talking about with this with the floor is that and I fully admit that my understanding of it might not be perfect. I have actually read the text of the CBA, but I need to read it again to really get it. Is if the only penalty for not spending to the floor is that you distribute that money among your other players, that is a cost in the in the sense that you're not using that money to maximize your profit, but it's not a penalty. It's just a it's just an unfortunate consequence, and it probably actually makes your players more happy in that sense. I, I totally agree. Uh, total topic shift. I just I'm looking at Twitter, and, and Bill Simmons is tweeting about Riggin for Wiggins, and I was thinking, question of fear. If you get the number one pick right now, do you go Randall or do you go Wiggins? Because Wiggins hasn't he hasn't really looked like he's worthy of the hype in in the first two games. In the first two games, I, that's. 
rushing to judgment completely. But I, I do wonder if you have to make that choice, what do you choose? I think that it depends to a degree on your circumstance. There's this theory that I've had for years, and I got a lot of heat actually for this. I wrote a top 60 rankings column, and one of the guys that I, for the future and all that, and one of the guys I didn't include was Gordon Hayward. And the reason that I didn't include him is that for me, if you're a perimeter player, if you're not a primary ball handler, an elite defender, or a primary scorer, your value is greatly diminished. And so that was the same reason I was critical of Kevin Durant, when Durant, I wasn't as high on him. I thought Odin over Durant was a clear call. I was, I will admit that I was wrong. Oh man! And the the reason the reason for that was that I didn't feel at that time that his skill set was as conducive to. Oh, he's definitely a number one scorer. And I feel the same way with Wiggins. So you can take that for what it for what it is. It could be that I'm again I'm similarly underestimating his ability to immediately transition that. But he also, the other benefit with him is that I think he has more defensive potential off the bat than Durant. So I would say that it depends on what you need. If you, To me, if you had, for whatever reason, if you were able to fall enough in the lottery with, while having a guy that you were comfortable with being the primary scorer, I think Wiggins, is his worst case scenario is Harrison Barnes, super, super strong. You know, Harrison Barnes... His flaw was always that he wasn't assertive enough and that he wasn't that dominant guy, but that if you had him as a number two, he could be a more functional piece. Wiggins, his worst case, would be incredible in that role. Yes, I, I, I do agree, and I need more information before I can make that call. With Durant, the Odin question, I believe that Durant was picked after Odin because he was the superior player and thus did not fit the prototype of what a center is because – when you think about it, Durant is center height. He is center height. He just didn't, he wasn't a big man. In fact, he was punished for being able to shoot threes and have ball skills on the perimeter because scouts didn't know what to do with it. And that is why I believe, I believe that he was picked after Odin, ironically, because he was better than Odin. Interesting thought. I feel like I have to mention with Julius Randle, I'm a big fan of his. I, I was talking with a friend of mine who was at, we were talking about the draft and, He's like, what do you think of Randall? And I thought about it a lot, and I would say right now, and we're going to see if this manifests itself over the year. His stock could go higher or lower, but as of right now, I have him as the best pure power forward prospects that eliminates guys like Duncan since Chris Webber. And Chris Webber was an amazing prospect. I think people sometimes lose sight of how good he was then and how good everybody thought he was going to be, and he's going to be a Hall of Famer anyway, but that he he could be the the uh, you and I have talked about Kevin Love as kind of one of the prototypical offensive power forwards in today's NBA. Yes. He could be Kevin Love on offense while not being a bad defender and possibly even being a plus defender. And that concept should terrify the league. Well, uh, yeah, and for what it's worth, I know they have slightly different roles. Uh Randall is 50 pounds heavier than Wiggins. They just one looks like an NBA player right now. I was kind of shocked by just just how scrawny Wiggins looked. Obviously, he can he can add weight, and I, I don't want to seem like I'm down on Wiggins, but I it just wasn't there was this it, it didn't translate the way I thought it would from seeing all the highlights and all the clips uh, from his high school action uh, to when he was surrounded by larger players on the college scale. 
And the third guy to me in this draft, and I don't think he's getting enough enough pub right now. He's my my guy that I'm beating the drum for is is Exum. I think mm. that I've been I, my weakness in terms of evaluating the draft, and I've said this for years, is big guys who can be primary ball handlers on teams. It was the same reason that I love LeBron, same reason that I love Sean Livingston as a prospect, Rubio to a degree. And to me, the in some ways, the holy grail for an NBA perimeter player for for a team is a guy who can be a primary ball handler without any of the limitations and defend twos. And he could be the first of that since LeBron. He could be. I need to see more of Exum, but I'm obviously very excited about about him and, and his potential. I just try to simplify it when I look at drafts. I, I, I like a lot of blocks, a lot of steals, and very efficient scoring. Now, that could make you miss on a certain amount of prospects, but that, that's, that's been fairly tried and true. If you're a big man and you don't get, and you're not blocking over a shot a game as a power forward or a center in college, it, the, the odds are just overwhelming that you're going to stink. With perimeter players, it's a little dicier, a little more complicated. Yeah, and it's hard. A lot of people have trouble, and I've had trouble with this too, but I've gotten better with it, with guys who have really high assist ratios. I, Kendall Marshall is an amazing example of this, that he, there's creating opportunities for other people in the NBA is dramatically different than it is in college. Yeah. And I think that a lot of people think that that's a skill that transfers, like rebounding is to a point, and it absolutely is not. Yes, I... I... That that has been that has been borne out, and I wonder why creating at a college level is different. I I know there's a difference between facing the action baseline versus facing to the middle, and that there are some strategic differences based on the improved athleticism. But you would almost you you would assume that players could adjust for that. It just seems that they can't. I would say that the difference is that the the two positions that have the greatest athleticism disparity between college and pro, even whether you're talking among high-level players or among the general populace that you play, are point guard and center. And point guards are actually affected by that more than centers because they handle both. Because if you're, it's harder to get around a guy who's bigger and strong, who's bigger and faster, or just faster and stronger than you, whatever the combination is. And it's the same reason that I'm skeptical of Marcus Smart who I like on a personal level, and I've seen some stuff from him that I do like, but I worry about him, kind of like a wide receiver, I worry about him creating the separation. I just worry about guys who don't go in the draft when they should. It's almost like they doubt themselves at some level. That That's a very subjective judgment to have, but you have to wonder about a guy where he can be the number one pick and he decides to stay. Maybe he's getting paid under the table by T. Boone, you know, T. Boone picking, so... <laughs> Maybe that's the reason. <laughs> I'm not accusing. I don't want to get sued. But you, you have to wonder about a guy's confidence in his own game if he's staying, when he could go and he could make a lot more money. And the, and the point about this that the, I think, and this goes back to something that we talked about earlier, is that in the NBA, it's not about your first contract. It's about your second, and I would say to a larger point, if you can make it there, it's about your third. And... Whenever, to me, my stance has always been under the current CBA, under the current, you know, meaning the last two, that as soon as you can be a first-round pick, you leave. Because if you're a second-round pick, it's a, there's a possibility that the team won't invest enough in you for them to give you a chance. And once one team burns you, if you were a second-round pick, it's a lot harder to get another chance. Yes. The but I, I would add that perception is huge 
and perception is framed by draft selection. So uh, a lot of this, what ends up happening is that if you're a top five pick, you can dine out in that for a long time, even if you haven't fulfilled that status. I mean, Jeff Green, if Jeff Green is picked in the second round with that production, he does not. He absolutely does not get that second contract that he gets. So it is very important to have a, uh, to be a high draft choice uh, early on and sacrificing that to play another year in college seems to be a financially irresponsible decision because of that. And it's surprising to me that we're seeing less teams use what the Hawks did this year of having drafting a guy who you like and stashing him overseas because basically, especially now with the with the part of the CBA that they can basically sign away the cap hold, which I think is unbelievably stupid. But the benefit of having a guy develop on somebody else's dime, I'm shocked Utah didn't do it with Rudy Gobert. Because if you or Giannis, I mean, as much as I love seeing him in the NBA and as a as a selfish NBA fan, I'm very happy. It's the inefficiencies. If you can get a guy to stay, stay abroad, even if it's an American, I think we might see more of that unless they change the CBA. For if you're an NBA team and you like a guy, you should have him overseas for a couple of years because then you get their entire prime. Yeah, it's so funny because I've heard the defense of keeping college basketball around and the NBA helping college basketball, the age limit, as it's a free it's a free farm system, which I totally disagree with. No, a free farm system isn't arguably more popular than your sport and doesn't play on the same nights and in the same season that your sport plays, taking eyeballs away from you. That's just you getting played for a sucker. That's what that is. That's not how a business runs itself. But you know what is a free farm system? You stash in a prospect overseas where they're not competing with you at all in popularity as a league. And yes, on somebody else's dime, they're getting developed. So not only is that the right decision for teams, it, it might be the right decision for the NBA as a whole. That's an interesting, because I've always seen it as an inefficiency. But if you're thinking about it in the way that it actually is an efficiency for the league at large, then that you could, see, you could argue that it's a larger aggregate benefit. And the other factor in that, which we might end up seeing more of, is I would love to see that combined with some sort of interesting combination with either with eliminating the age limit or maneuvering around the perception of moving basketball to something that's more like soccer in the sense that if there are guys who don't, well, you know, college isn't for everybody. That's not that's not to say like, oh, NBA players shouldn't or anything. I just think that's that way for everybody. But it's so weird to have a system where you are required to do something that is completely unrelated to your chosen profession. Yeah, it's ridiculous. It's such a distraction. Uh, some, you know, the Wiggins thing almost highlights this absurdity. We, because now we're making a Canadian do it. This Canadian who could get paid by any team uh, and would be drafted number one has to go to our university in a place like Kansas or Kentucky. He chooses Kansas ultimately. But it, it, it's just why. It just really highlights that we have grown this tradition that makes no sense. Uh, and it, if the NBA ran itself like other businesses do, they would view college basketball as a competitor, and they would kill it because they can. They can kill it. They can do that. They. That's all. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. All they would have to do is go, okay, we're going to get a list of, say, I don't know, the top 100 or top 200 players, offer a reasonable stipend to join the D-League to those top players, and boom, college basketball is so talent-deprived that it can't continue as it, as it does. 
And that's part of the reason also that I I'm really excited to see what happens with Exum because the possibility that we get a true international player who could have gone to college and elects not to, it, it ha it's happened before. It's not, you know, a truly rare circumstance. Brandon Jennings even is an American player who did it. But it would be great to to kind of see that pathway understood as a more realistic possibility than what Wiggins did, what Steven Adams did, and a bunch of guys like that who kind of went into that system and did it. And I would say basketball embracing the fact also that you can have prodigies and that you can have LeBron James could have played in the NBA at 17. Yes. He wouldn't have been, he, he might not have even been rookie of the year then. I personally think he would have been, but to give them that experience and that if you, then you lose the, you lose all the stupid garbage that comes with amateur status and with all of that, that, you know, if these guys, and what happens if a guy, you know, has that, he's a basketball prodigy, he makes, let's say he makes $300,000 that he wouldn't have made, and then he tears his Achilles and he can never play basketball again. You know, at least they were able to make that money and be able to do, to do what they loved and do that as opposed to taking all of the risk on themselves for no discernible reason. I just think there are so many fallacies when it comes to the pro-college basketball arguments. Uh, one of them is that players develop better. We have enough evidence to show that they don't. The other is that it's better for their maturity. We have enough evidence to show that players in college basketball have higher rates of things like arrests, so that, that doesn't happen as well. And we end up doing this thing where... Uh, the argument is, look at this player. If he had played in college basketball, Dwight Howard, if he had played college basketball, he would have been so much better. Well, you don't know that. We don't play out that reality. I doubt it would have happened because college basketball doesn't seem to be a great place for men, for uh, big men to develop their skills. Uh, one of the problems with college ball is that it's dissimilar from pro ball. The three-point line is shorter. There, the, the refs, the, the whole system of refing that game not one body controls it. It's particular to each conference. So it's just this total mishmash. And so all these teams are just grabbing on defense. They're just clutching and grabbing. So that's not enabling you to actually practice for what you need at the next level. I, I'm just going out on a limb and saying that the best way to get better at NBA basketball is to play NBA basketball. The other thing that I've never heard somebody talk about as a really concrete argument, but I think of Greg Oden as an example of this, as the medical technology. Yeah. I think that if you had high-end guys doing, like, if you had an 18-year-old kid that could, instead of, you know, going to college and doing that thing, and I love the college experience, I will not knock the college experience for those who want to have it, but... That could then, instead of doing that, learn how to be a pro from Steve Nash and learn how to eat well and how to exercise. And to do that at 18 as opposed to waiting until 20, I think that would be a huge benefit to their development as an athlete and logically, presumably, as a basketball player as well. Yeah, you don't want to be surrounded by the other idiots who are your age. I mean, when I was a freshman in college, I had a diet of, of malt liquor and, and uh, Cheez-Its. And there was nobody around me to tell me otherwise and to tell me that was a bad idea. I, I think I could have benefited from sharing a dorm room with Steve Nash. <laughs> so we'll have, we'll have to see. I think in some ways the a lot of the NBA structures that we have been talking about exist solely because they have existed before. Yes. And it, one of my great hopes is that the changeover in commissioner will also lead to, whether or not it leads to a change necessarily in attitudes, it leads to an opening of the discussion at the levels that we don't get to speak with of, hey, how can we make this better?
Yeah, and I, it's very frustrating because people seem to really cling to this is the way it's always been done when it comes to sports. I, in fact, I think part of the reason for why this happens is because sports are so important to people that it's very discomforting to start questioning the very structure and revealing it as somewhat arbitrary. That that these laws, these edicts weren't handed down by God, that they were just kind of stumbled upon is, is scary to people. Uh, I've run into this when I've made this or that suggestion, and maybe it's because my suggestions suck. That's quite possible, but I do believe there's an element of I'm uncomfortable with change in this realm. I'm uncomfortable with you taking this system, telling me that this sport that I imbue with a lot of nobility is imperfect and, and somewhat arbitrary, and I don't want to think about it. And that's why, to me, it's more about the attitude than anything else, because I don't have to, I, I don't have the feeling that my stance is right and everybody else is wrong. It's just identifying a problem or identifying something that could potentially be improved and say, okay, what are all of the options that are possible? And then discussing all of them openly and honestly, and then deciding, okay, this is, this is what's best. Because even if you end up where you were, hearing that stuff and having it out in the public discourse as opposed to in smaller corners of the discourse like what we're doing would only help and would only foster new ideas, too. Yes, I, I really do hope that, that Silver is more open to these ideas. And we should stress that the NBA does certain things well. They're very giving when it comes to statistical information, when it comes to YouTube highlights. That's all well and good. There are just these other issues, stuff like the Clear Path Review, for instance, where how does anybody sit down and think this is the best solution to this problem, that we take this situation that we want to prevent because it gums up the game where a guy grabs an offensive player on a fast break, and we go, okay, that's, that's boring, that's a drag on the game, we don't want that, and the way to fix it is with a lengthy review to determine whether or not by the letter of the law it's a clear path violation. It, it's stuff like that that's very niche now, and I just realized as I describe it out loud, but stuff like that is very frustrating. It could just be fixed. It's an intent call. And then the other one to me, I, I brought this up a couple of days ago and got a little bit of positive responses. I, I love NBA League Pass. I think they've done a lot of good things. Well, I also think that NBA TV has more, especially with things like the starters, has better quality content than most of their compatriots. But it's shocking to me that even if you're the most hardcore NBA fans that it, the fans or people who cover the sport, that you can only basically get, at maximum, about three games in high definition at one time. That's very frustrating. They should fix that. I, I would disagree slightly on NBA TV. I love the guys who are making the starters, and I wish them all the best of luck, and that hopefully is a positive indicator for the future direction of that channel, but I think that channel's been, up until this point, a failure. The NBA started it, because the idea is that you, you make your own product in-house and you can charge higher cable rates for it, but they bungled it so badly that they had to bring TNT in to fix it. So now it just looks like some sort of afterthought that TNT half runs, and you can tell that the that the uh, viewership's not high because the commercials look like some infomercial stuff with the terrible graphics and everything else. So they they have not done well by that. They haven't taken that channel and turned it into something. They had a little something at the beginning with Gary Payton and Chris Webber, but for whatever the reason they went away from it, uh, now they're really looking to find their footing. That's, that's, that's a fair point. Well, well, we'll leave it at that for right now. Thank you so much for coming on. It's always a blast to talk with you. Thanks so much, man. It's a really smart podcast you have. I mean, aside <laughs> from the, the dumbness I've injected into it. Well, thanks so much. Take care. See you. 
Thanks again to all my guests. We had Dan Hanner, who is a college basketball writer for both Real GM and ESPN Insider. His prediction piece, incredibly detailed, it's on ESPN Insider, and his explanation pieces on it and descriptions are on both Real GM and on ESPN, depending on which piece. They're all great to read if you're into college basketball or if you want to hear a little bit about the guys who are going to be coming up if you're an NBA fan. Definitely worth a read. Thanks again to Rashid Malik, who is the co-owner of WarriorsWorld.net. It is an amazing site. It's a great community if you're into that. If you want to, if you're a Warriors fan, if you're not a Warriors fan but want to understand the psyche, there aren't any better places to look than there. And also Ethan Sherwood Strauss, who writes for ESPN. I've been reading him for years. I've known him for years. He's a very talented writer who also has his has strong opinions and great innovative thoughts on how the sport should go. It's great fun to talk with him. As I've said before, this is a collaborative process. I love your input. We're going to have a theme song, and music is going to be more involved in the future. Licensing has been an issue with that. It's coming. Very excited about that. And so if you have any comments, it's great to reach out to me. My Twitter handle is at Danny LaRue, D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X. You can also email daniel.laroux at realgm.com. I read it. I will respond. I will take it into account. I want to make it the best show possible. So thanks again for listening, and make it a great day. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be confusing. Like Swedish techno confusing. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Dance with me, purple cow. Bark, bark, meow, meow. Ooh, you lovely cow. Geico makes it easy. With 24-7 access, all you have to do is go to Geico.com, and you can save money on car insurance. It just makes sense. Unlike... You know. Dance with me, purple cow. I like your mood.